So act two is is that awakening. It's the waking up to ask the question, what do I want? Not how do I be good? Not what do others want of me? What do I want? And then aligning one's actions and behaviors and goals and what we say yes to around that. It's really hard work to to answer that question of what do I want, particularly when there's been a lot of reward for not considering what you want, for being the good soldier. Are you new to working from home? Maybe you're figuring out how to manage a distributed team. Are you homeschooling your kids while trying to get something, anything else done? You've come to the right place. Work Life at Home talks with both newbies and experts as we explore the tools, tips, and techniques that will help you make the most of this new way of working. I'm Josh Freeman. Welcome home. Even after this pandemic is over and things return to normal, whatever that ends up looking like, many, many of us will still be working from home and managers will have to figure out how to build strong, connected teams of folks who are located, well, everywhere and anywhere. My guest today is Kate Gigax. She's a certified executive coach, facilitator, and the founder of Development Core, a group of executive coaches, facilitators, trainers, and consultants who help their clients live what they call bigger versions of their lives, whether that means getting unstuck at work or becoming a stronger leader. Kate has worked with Adobe, Accenture, Twitter, Microsoft, Salesforce, Lionsgate, Virgin Orbit, the Center for Creative Leadership, and the Make-A-Wish Foundation, among others. And she knows her stuff. Let's find out more about managing your team well, balancing your career with the rest of your life, and coping with the challenges of working from home. Kate, welcome to Work Life at Home. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Almost everybody who manages other people at this point finds themselves managing remote teams. And as a manager, you've said that you basically, you represent the company to your team, that you are the company. Tell me what you think are the challenges about doing that and and where do people forget that? So when I say that to an employee, the manager is the company. What I'm referring to is called, the technical term for it is called the psychological contract. The psychological contract is something that we form. It's a script running in our heads the moment we join an organization. We sign our actual contract, which includes things like our salary and our benefits. But what we are doing mentally is we are starting a relationship a relationship with the organization. And it's characterized by things like commitment and expectations of a reciprocal relationship. I'm going to work. uh, I'm going to give my work to you. I'm going to give my commitment to you. I'm going to give my time to you. And in return, here's what I expect. And the thing about relationships is we can't have a relationship with a concept with a construct, with an organization. 
we have relationships with people. So the, the person who embodies that relationship with the organization is almost necessarily the manager. And this is obviously true regardless of remote teams, in-person teams, all of that. I would argue it is more true with remote teams because we don't have a place to go. We don't have other people that we're seeing. Granted, there might be other people that we speak to, potentially even more than our manager. But when it comes to who embodies the organization, who represents the organization to us, it's the manager. And what's true is we all feel it as employees, but so often in my practice, I see that managers are not owning that. And particularly in the remote situation, that relationship is so critical to maintain and managers need to really cultivate it, cultivate it like a relationship. Right now, the number one rule I'm putting out there and the challenge I'm putting out there to everyone is you have to ask, you have to reach out, you have to ask this question that's become so big right now in our pandemic times, but is true of remote work always. Are you okay? Yeah. And for some managers, that feels too personal. And right now I view it as mandatory because it's you representing the organization saying, you are a person and how are you doing? And do you think that employees actually do find that invasive? Not in the slightest. I think employees find it connective. Granted, there will be a spectrum. Some people need it more. Some people will feel the absence if that question is not asked because, again, they're looking for a relationship. Others will say, this is this is where I work. And the difference between those two employees describes their psychological contract. For someone who has a psychological contract that is more relational, which is one end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. they, they want their relationship with their work to be characterized in very relational terms using words like commitment and loyalty and all of this extra discretionary effort they're willing to put in because they view this as a real relationship of this is more than the money to me. And those are the people, those are the employees that we should be really, really ensuring that we're maintaining that relationship. Because when we don't, as managers, when we treat a relationship as transactional, which is the other end of the spectrum of I work, you pay me. And sometimes with best of intentions, that's how we treat our employees. Did you, did you do the thing I asked? How, where's this? How's this? I'm out. And we haven't, we haven't cultivated, we haven't tended to the relationship. That's when the employee's relationship with the organization slides right down that spectrum from being highly relational to being more transactional. And it's when we lose the commitment, the discretionary effort, basically everything good that they signed on for. So there's a concept that I'm familiar with, which is the idea of ownership of the work that you're doing. And there's a lot of people who talk about their job in this kind of, they want me to do this. And there's this whole you know, me versus them concept. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other type of person that says, we are doing this. We are Mm -hmm. going to create this thing. We're going to make this product. We're going to hit this deadline, whatever it is that feels like part of that team. And it's kind of a fundamental difference in the way that people approach the, the work that they do and the relationship they have with their company that they work for. So it sounds like that's exactly the same problem, right? 
It's the same thing. It really, it really is interesting. The language we use, right? Yeah. When we are talking about we, what we're really saying is I'm part of this. I feel like I belong here. I'm part of something bigger. And that is such a basic fundamental human need to be part of something bigger. And when we don't feel part of something bigger, it's they. And we almost, I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but we almost demonize the they. It's, oh, a, absolutely. it's a kind of the man. That's, when, that's yep. when we're talking yep. about the man is asking me to do this because there's a sense of otherness. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we want to feel part of something. And when we don't, there are, and again, it, I use real language of feeling because it's a relationship. Uh, the feelings are characterized by resentment, yep, bitterness. It's that that sourness. Yep, we feel victimized. Yes, yeah. it's the sourness of of feeling uh, like a victim. And 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 again, I go back to the otherness. Whereas when we feel a part of things, we use highly relational language of we and c- commitment and loyalty and and all of these things that just show I am part of this. I identify with this. My values are the same. Yeah. Words are so important because that's what we use to think with. <laughs> so how we, how we characterize things is basically how we think about things. It's like, that's the language that we use. That's how it comes out. So how do you develop the trust that we're talking about? Because so many people have this idea of like, well, if people are working at home, how do I know they're working? And it's inherently a mistrustful thing if you come at it from that point of view. So how do you get around that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that is such a common belief of, I used to be able to see people and see that they were working. And if I can't see that, how do I know? And the number one piece of counsel or advice I would invite managers to consider is, would you regret if this person left? And if the answer is yes, that would be a regrettable loss. I encourage people to consider just trust. Let them prove you wrong. Yeah. And it is that easy. It's a choice not to trust. And sometimes we have our our evidence of why someone isn't trustworthy, to which I would ask, so would it be regrettable? Would it be regrettable if they left? And when we consider that, that yes, it would be regrettable, then you have no other choice. Then you have to just trust that those are the table stakes. If you don't trust, that will show. It will show in your language. You know, it, when when we were in person, people used to talk about having a better poker face. Hmm. And inevitably, when I would be delivering feedback, someone receives feedback around. You can see what they're thinking on their face. And, and very often the ask is, can you help me develop a better poker face? And my answer is always the same. No. I can't help you develop a better poker face, (laughs) but let's look at what you're thinking that's showing up on your face. And trust is the same way. You can't fake trust. You can't because it seeps through in, to your point, our language, Mm -hmm. in our tone. And what is true is that we have an incredible radar for when we are trusted. We can sense when it's not there. Mm -hmm. So my invitation to managers is... What if you did? You know, people say I have a I have a I have a hard time trusting and, and my invitation is what if you just let that go? What if you just trust and let people prove you wrong? Because that is a felt sense that that people will be able to feel. And when 
we break down what is trust. I love to use the trust quotient, which is we're going to introduce some math here. It's credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, which that's the relational piece of it. And it's divided by self-interest. So given that self-interest is on the bottom, if we perceive self-interest, it brings trust down. So trust is a two-way street. So anytime we're talking about trust and inevitably when we're talking about accountability, trust comes into the equation. We have to look at to what extent are you being trustworthy? And if you are having trouble trusting your employees, what is it? Is it the reliability Is it Mm -hmm. the credibility? Is it they're acting in a transactional manner with you? Or do you perceive that because they're working at home, they are self-interested in doing other things? And whatever you are diagnosing, speak to that. Get through that so you can trust. That if you have data to suggest that you cannot trust, let's diagnose where it's coming from and address it directly because we have no other choice. Well, the thing is that People see this in a binary way, and it's not really a binary thing. It's a continuum. And so if you have a chance to check in with people on a regular basis, which you, I think, should as a manager, and you can sort of get a sense of their progress on whatever it is they're supposed to be doing, that seems like enough because if they're doing that in between, um, I don't know, you know, having to walk their dog and take care of their kid who's on, you know, remote learning and they have a baby and who knows what else is going on with their lives, but they're getting their work done, then how and when they exactly are doing that seems like that should be their issue and not your issue. As long as you are able to check and make sure that, you know, yeah, things are moving forward. I could not agree more. And what I'm seeing from the clients that I'm supporting who are employees as well as managers, right? They're facing it from both ends. Sure, of course. I work with so many parents right now who have just been struggling to balance it all. And what I observe is that when their organizations transmitted through their managers are supporting, hey, I trust you. You'll get it done. You're managing everything. You're managing so much. These people are working late at night. They are working weekends to make up for virtual school and walking the dog and doing all the things that need to get done in in certain time-bound ways. The net result is being and perceiving that trust from the organization is building loyalty. And that is something far greater than the people I'm supporting who don't feel trusted and feel that they need to work the core hours and do what needs to get done within this time frame that their manager's working or that they used to work within, their loyalty is going down. Those are the ones that are asking the big questions of, do I, do I need a different environment now? If this, if this is the way I want to keep working or I need to keep working for now, maybe it's time to change. And we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of mobility. The pandemic has given us all this collective opportunity to zoom out and think about how we want to be living our lives. And I've seen a lot of people realizing this relationship doesn't work for me anymore. And, yeah. and, and it's the relationship with the organization. So now is, the, is, is really a, a call to action of we need to foster the relationship with our employees. I think managing remotely is the X games of managing. It, makes everything a little bit more complex and fostering that relationship 
is perhaps the most important ingredient to maintaining it, just like a real relationship. Yep. Exactly. Well, it is a real relationship, isn't it? It <laughs> is. Just, it is. Yeah. We don't even need yeah. to make that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So this is leading me into another area here, which is this idea of people sort of thinking about where do I go from here? This is everything's changed so much. And I know that from a company perspective, things have changed for a lot of companies who just weren't used to this method of working. But on an individual level, people are thinking about like, how do I go forward in this environment? What do I, you know, where do I want to work? How do I want to work? And, and, you know, what things are consistent, what things have changed. And one of the things you talk about is that you work with women who are in the second act of their life. And I'm curious to know what that exactly means. What is a second act? And is this something that triggers it? Yes. This is a topic I'm so passionate about. (laughs) So, um, having, having navigated it myself. Um, so in order to understand the second act, we have to start with the first act, right? The first act, just like the three acts of a play Mm. is the beginning. It's the beginning of one's career. And as a young woman entering the workforce, Uh, particularly those with a high achieving orientation. So these are people often who were raised to be, and I put it in quotes, good girls. Mm -hmm. So as a result of socialization, as a result of how we were parented, as a result of how we were taught in schools, there's this message of uh, good, quote unquote, good being valued. And there's a bit of a script for how to be a good girl, right? You are nice, you are likable, you are helpful. And as a high achiever, you work really, really hard. So as a young woman in the workforce, you do what you know, you do all of those things. You are really nice and you're likable and you volunteer for things and you say yes, 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 yes. And you're helpful and you become your boss's um, go-to person, Mm -hmm. right? That is is a badge of honor as a young professional being a go-to person. That's how you know you're succeeding. So young women learn to do all of these things because that's what we've been taught. And turns out it works. Successive promotions, uh, bigger jobs, more responsibility. That is act one in a nutshell. That's what it's characterized by doing what we know and having it work. Mm-hmm. Um, the net effect of that is a whole lot of work, right? Because you're saying, yes, you're being helpful. You're a strong number two. You're a go-to person. You're a utility player. All of these words that people have heard on their performance reviews that we are kind of proud of, right? Right. What happens is that ladders up to things like burnout and uh, becoming what I call unintentionally competent in a particular area because you've just said yes enough. It's the whole, be careful what you become good at. Mm -hmm. And we end up zooming out at some point, waking up and saying, is this even what I want to do? And that's what we're seeing so much of right now in the pandemic of people waking up and asking those bigger questions. What my observation is we're all kind of collectively doing that in the pandemic right now. (laughs) 
Yes. And I, I can speak to why. I have a I, I, I have a, a theory on why. But in act two, often women wake up and ask that question because they're exhausted, because they're burned out, or because their lives have changed. Maybe there's more to life now. Maybe there are children. I have several clients who've gotten sick, who life has been interrupted because their bodies have said, stop. Right. We sure. can't grind. We can't do this anymore. So act two is, is that awakening? It's the waking up to ask the question, the very fundamental question that really for many hasn't been considered before, which is what do I want? Not how do I be good? Not what do others want of me? What do I want? And then aligning one's actions and behaviors and goals and what we say yes to around that. And it's really hard work. It's really hard work to, to answer that question of what do I want, particularly when there's been a lot of reward for not considering what you want, for being the good soldier. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you're characterizing this as something that's unique to women, but I think it might be unique to lots of people who may or may not be female. And I know that Absolutely. there's, you know, there definitely has been times in my life where I've had to stop and go, is this what I really want to be doing? Is this Absolutely. right? Does this feel okay? No, <laughs> you know, maybe I need to do something different. And it is just so difficult. It's really easy to figure out this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like where mm -hmm. things are right now. Figuring mm -hmm. out what else to do instead. Whoa, that's, that's a whole other process and challenge. That's so true, isn't it? And I'm guessing you encounter that. Absolutely. Well, that, that's, that's true for all of us, which is so interesting. Our bodies and our intuition will tell us what we don't want. That part's pretty easy, right? That's what, that's what you're describing. Yes. But, but converting that into what we do want is, that's the work. That's the mm -hmm. work because it's not just, it's not the inverse of what we don't want. Right. right. And we can't just turn that on its ear and say, yeah, I, I don't want to work this much. Well, that must mean I don't want to work. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Right. <laughs> it's finding right. out, right. well, how do I want to work? Um, which is, which is the real work. And that's where I absolutely agree with you. Act two is not unique to women. What I love about the act two challenge for women and particularly for high achieving women is that there are certain hallmarks that seem to be somewhat universal that um that that it's it's the undoing and the the rewiring of some of those modes of thinking that frankly have become quite limiting those very things that made us successful in act 1 saying yes being helpful being nice um, managing expectations. Those are the very things that hurt us in act two. And, and whereas act two is fairly universal, it's the course of a career, right? Everybody goes through act two. I love the unique brand of challenge that most high achieving women face in act two around, uh, being less helpful. These things that are just so hardwired into us. Right. We've all known women like this, I'm sure. And I can completely see the pattern. I mean, I have, you know, <laughs> lots of women around me, clients, uh, sister-in-laws, you know, all these people who are like this. And I think the challenges are, you know, when I say that they're universal, there are aspects that are universal. But I also think that women face a kind of a 
a deeper challenge because it's layered with these expectations of how women are supposed to behave. And when I think of, uh, you know, I think of clients, for example, that I've had, you know, as you're describing these people, these kind of nice people who are high achieving, working their butts off, those women, I'm contrasting those to some others who I've known who are just like trying to be guys or something. They're like, Mm -hmm. they're, Mm -hmm. they are caricatures of the evil boss who yells at everybody, you know? And I think there's everything we've talked about keeps coming back to this idea of it's not binary. It's like, you don't have to turn 180 degrees and become a terror to people. You can just focus on the things that are positive and productive for you, keep the good relationship stuff alive, but not say yes to everything and not become a doormat. You know, you can become a leader basically without being, uh, you know, without being so protected and armored that you have to be nasty to everybody around you. You know, the armor is, I am so glad you use that word. I, I, I think that's the right word of it is it's protective. Right. And I do a lot of work with women in technology and I'm so curious that technology has always been and continues to be generally a fairly masculine and male dominated environment. Yeah. It's totally a boys club. Right. And observing how my female clients navigate that there are, to your point, a spectrum of, do you, you know, if you can't beat them, join them and do you put armor up and go in and, and be one of the guys, or do you find your own way? And I am such a proponent of you get to design it. You get to be you and have it work out. Hey, it's Josh. We'll be back in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about my company, Free Associates, which sponsors this podcast. Free Associates is a brand strategy and design agency that's created highly successful, large-scale programs for some very big companies, Tempur-Pedic and Sealy, Kenwood Audio, Elkin Components, Memorex, to name just a few. And we've also worked for plenty of much smaller companies. We've helped brand events like the Bi-Coastal Revlon Run Walk and the Mercedes-Benz Cup Tennis Championship. We've helped for-profit enterprises and nonprofits alike, new brands just starting out, and long-established brands who want to bring their image and identity into the 21st century. And we've done all this as a distributed company with nearly everyone on our team working from home since I founded the firm in 1993. If you've got a brand that needs defining or refreshing, and you want some help from a small firm with big experience, visit freeassociates.net or email me here, josh at worklifeathome.com. Free Associates, fresh, seasoned, ready to help you transform your business. I've gotten really interesting lately about the notion of crying at work, which is something that is inevitably associated with being more feminine and um, weak, frankly. And so I've been interviewing women to hear about their experiences of crying at work. And inevitably there is this element of shame and the sense of, I will be judged and I will be viewed weak. And I need to toughen up so many of the women I spoke to talked about this need to toughen up, which speaks to I let my guard down 
and now I need to put my armor back on. And that's kind of sad. Do you think that that, that, that comes from uh, sort of up to that point, this kind of a lifetime of training, of being able to express and be in touch with your emotions, that that, with, you know, thinking about all of the things that women learn about being a good girl and, you know, succeeding and all of the things you discussed. But there's also this thing about the expectation that women will show emotion and guys won't. And that that is a society driven idea rather than a genetic idea. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, as somebody who cries in movies, <laughs> I, I feel like expressing your emotions is okay, you know? And I'm it's a sorry. Human thing. For, yeah, I'm sorry right? if somebody cries, yeah. but I don't think it's shameful in any way. And, uh, you know, there must be one or two other guys like me in the world. <laughs> Let's hope there are. <laughs> you know, I think it relates to, and there's, uh, I think Brene Brown has really opened up yeah. an interesting dialogue on vulnerability that we just need to be having uh, right now. And there is this inherent association between showing vulnerability, showing emotion and weakness. And I'm so glad that the narrative is changing on it's not wrong. It's not weak. Uh, it can be, there's, there's power in it. There's strength mm-hmm. in vulnerability. And I will tell you one thing that is true of so many women I've spoken to that their tears have been tears of rage and anger. Yes. And one of my clients said, these tears are not me crying because I'm weak. These tears are me punching the wall because I am furious. And coupled with lots of other feelings, right? I mean, I assume when you when you are so angry and so upset in a public situation, it's probably because you've been shamed somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I, I imagine. If I think back about, I mean, I've not cried in business meetings, which I'm probably glad about, but I have sure felt that combination of shame and anger that makes you want to. And mm-hmm. it's so... It's such an awful kind of self, it's not self-defeating, but it just, it, it, it makes you feel so bad as a person in so many ways at once. And I'm expecting that's what comes out when it's leaking out as tears is like this combination of like, I hate this person. They made me look like an idiot. I'm terrible at what I do. <laughs> it's like, you know, I look like an idiot because I'm crying, like all of these layers of of stuff. Then is that does that mesh with what you're saying? It's so it's so many layers. And then inevitably what follows is the vulnerability hangover. Tears or no tears. I think most people can relate to the vulnerability hangover where we have shown something that made us feel weak. Yeah. And maybe the display of it did not feel like weakness, but people's response made mm-hmm. us feel weak. And that mm-hmm. thus begins the shame spiral, which is the vulnerability hangover of, oh, why did I do that? And how am I going to show my face again? And all of this relates to confidence and not so much confidence in if we're more confident, we don't do that. But some of those events that are fairly traumatizing affect our confidence. And mm-hmm. I will say that of the women I work with, about 80 to 90% of them would like to feel more confident. 
which is sure. really interesting. And there's a there's a great Harvard Business Review article that talks about the the gender differences in confidence versus competence, right? So mm-hmm. women are much more likely to do our homework and to make sure we are competent before we speak up. Whereas our male counterparts are much more likely to say, well, if I speak about this with some authority, this is the the embodiment of mansplaining, right? Um, (laughs) If I can speak about this with authority and then check my facts later, Uh that's good. And so while (laughs) women are more likely to be off doing their homework, our male counterparts are saying, here's what we need to do. And we're listening. So when I work with my clients on confidence, I don't like to talk about it as confidence because there is one thing that is true for most high achieving women. And that is, I am one of them. So I would, I use myself as an example Mm -hmm. that we identify with this concept of enoughness. So much of our lives have been characterized by our relationship to being enough. Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I thin enough? Am I working hard enough? Am I doing enough to get to the next level? So this It's a bit of a trigger, this notion of, am I enough? Am I enough of all these different things that when we talk about gaining confidence, it strums that cord of enoughness of, oh, great. Yet another thing I am not enough of. And when it comes to confidence, boy, that's a narrow target because no one likes a woman who's too confident. So it becomes this very narrow field that we're trying to hit of getting the right amount. So I feel confident enough, but not too confident that I lose likability points. Uh, Yeah. And so you no longer get to be the good girl. Right. Right. So, all right. So how do we resolve this? So here we are stating the problem very clearly. What can people do to, you know, help them turn the corner a little bit and go down a path that leads to them feeling either more confident or less worried about being confident. Yeah. So I like to just take confidence out of the equation. So for people who identify with wanting more confidence, I say, let's focus on your strengths and being in your worth. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is when we can own our strengths, when we can true up and own to, this is my zone of genius. You can say a lot of things about me, but this thing I am really good at. This is my strength. When we can operate in that zone, because most of us are moving through our lives, focusing on what we're not, right? Right. You mentioned that earlier. It's so easy to think of all these things I'm not. I'm not great with numbers. I'm not great with details, whatever it is. If we can just focus, flip the focus on our strengths and own our strengths, And then what I mean by being in our worth is knowing our value, knowing our value to the organization, knowing our value to our families. And one thing, part of the reason I love working with um, working mothers, particularly right now, because there's so much suffering there is I like to help them link, you know, you're a good mom. You know that people, most women have confidence in that. To the extent we can bring what you identify with being a good mother into your work, because you're a leader. As a mother, you are a leader. How do you bring that into work? That's when you are in your worth of, 
I know I'm good at this. And you know what? I might cry, but your shame that you're putting on me doesn't knock down my confidence. So being in our worth is knowing our value, being able to communicate it with conviction and being able to stand in our strength without doubt. When we can do that, and we've all had those meetings or those situations where we have done that and we can say, you know what? I feel proud. I did a good job and I can own that. Confidence is a byproduct. So what's a a way of getting in touch with that uh, that somebody could actually do? I mean, I'm imagining something like journaling would be really good Mm -hmm. for that. But what, what do you tell people to do? You know, one of the things I do for a lot of my clients is I collect feedback. And so I will go around and I will interview their colleagues. And the number one question I ask, the first question I always ask is, what are this person's strengths? And because we are so obsessed with our weaknesses, inevitably hearing one's strengths is one of the most surprising pieces of feedback. Everybody uh, sure. anticipates getting skewered by feedback, right? Uh-huh. So when I, when I start out with, here's, here's what people think you're really good at. They, inevitably, they, you know, there's a, oh, hmm, really? Oh, well, that, that feels nice. And often there's a discounting of, okay, well, let's, let's get, get to the weaknesses. <laughs> let's, let's get to the point of this exercise. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and when we can shift that and really kind of bask in, yes, I am good at this. And this thing that I'm good at is what's going to make me extraordinary. Shoring up my weaknesses is not ever going to lead to my greatness. It's the doubling down on my strengths will lead me to my greatness. So being able to pause on the strengths. So the number one thing I would suggest people do is go ask, what what would you, what do you think are my unique strengths? Because you know what? People like to have that conversation and, and others know, others can tell you. So even if it's asking your partner or your family, but I would encourage people, ask the people you work with to say, to tell you, what are my strengths? And they will tell you. And then the second biggest challenge is believe it and yeah. observe yourself doing it because we observe ourselves in our weaknesses all the time. We rarely catch ourselves in our zone of genius, in our strength. And when we can flip that mindset of being less obsessed with our weakness and more noticing strength, that's when we're in our power. That's when we're in our worth saying, damn, I'm good. I'm good at that. And not in a braggadocious way, in a self-compassionate way, in a supportive way, because we all know, think of for people who are parents, you don't get your kids to do things by saying, listen, you idiot, do this. You'd be mortified if someone said that to a child. Yet that's how we speak to ourselves all the time. So a big part of it is shifting the mindset and shifting that narrative to, okay, you've got this, you can do it. We can figure this out. And when we are doing that, we're in our worth. We're not badgering ourselves. We're not critiquing ourselves at every turn. And turns out that internal critique that's going on, that degrades confidence quite a bit. So the extent to which we can quiet a bit of that inner critic, that builds confidence. That sounds like a good, (laughs) a really good place to start. I was thinking while you were talking about the process of, of doing my website and There's an interesting thing. It must happen with people when they have to do their resumes and all that. There's this kind of feeling you have about whether you are, you know, blowing smoke at somebody about what you say you can do Mm -hmm. or whether you're being authentic. (laughs) And 
if you can sort of stop for a minute and actually evaluate your contribution, which you have to do if you're going to write something about yourself, and you can find those nuggets of, uh, of things what you are really good at, really ways in which you really can contribute to something, that seems like that helps anchor you in something that's authentic. And when you walk in for that job interview or you contact that next person, you have this sense of where you stand and what you can actually bring to the table. And yeah. I, I'm wondering if when you did your website, if that if you went through that process and if that felt like that for you. When I did my website, when I launched my business, I, I, I feel it probably mm, quarterly. <laughs> and oh, I would describe it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I would describe it as the who am I to do this feeling. That's that's often how it shows up for me. Um, mm -hmm. Wait, wait, what am I doing? When I started blogging, I thought, do I have anything to say? Who, who wants to read what I have to say? Exactly. And exactly. is that who who am I? Who do I think I am? Which that is a script. I like to think about it with our phones, right? If you, I don't know about you, but I'm somebody who always leaves a lot of apps open on my phone. So every once yep. in a while, I need to swipe up and close out a bunch of apps so it'll run more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true of our brains. We have these scripts running in the background that are just slowing us down. And that for me, I call it the, the who am I script. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that feeling of self, self doubt instead of support, or it's, it's that, I, I think it's all a version of that, that inner critic that's just, just challenging. And I think the neuroscience explains it fairly well of our brains are wired to keep us safe. And right. What keeps us safe is staying exactly where we are. Any change, even when it's something we want, is threatening. Absolutely. You know, and that, that has evolved. So our brains whisper these things to us that just aren't true in the spirit of keeping us safe because any, any change is threatening. So when we're tr building a website or trying to do something new or starting to write, our brains whisper to us, who are you to do this? And you, there are other people better at this than you. And if we listen to it, then that is a surefire way to stay stuck or to stay small. And so the nice thing is when it says that for you to be able to notice that that's happening and go, yeah. oh, there's that again. Okay. Yeah. There it is. Fine. And you let that go. And then you go do whatever it is you were going to do, like write your blog. Yeah. And, you know, just, I, I think a lot of people hope that that voice will go away someday. No. <laughs> that eventually we'll be confident enough mm -hmm. or self-assured enough that we just don't have those thoughts anymore. And I think that that's not the goal, right? Our brains, that's what our brains do. Our brains keep us safe to the extent that we can not fight that process, but be able to create some distance and when we hear that whisper, smile and say, thanks for keeping me safe. I'm going to do this anyway. Yeah. Beautiful. That, that's when we break through. I was listening to a podcast that Seth Godin does where he was talking about dancing with the fear and the mm -hmm. idea of knowing that's always going to be there. And what you have to mm -hmm. learn is this idea of it's okay. Yeah. And you don't have to let it run the show. It's just there, as you said, to protect you. It's fine. And you can acknowledge it and you can, as he says, dance with it. And I love that idea of like, mm. yeah, so you just grab the thing and start waltzing and, you know, 
and then spin it off and throw it across the room yeah. and it can sit in the chair for the next dance, you know? Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's great. I love that. Let's talk about how you actually go about coaching in a pandemic, which I am guessing your initial way of doing this was you would go to a corporate office somewhere and you would be talking to people. And as you said, asking people what their impression was of the person you were working with, or maybe lead groups in, in processes and workshops. Sure. I don't know, Yeah, but it has not been happening for the last year. So I'm wondering how you actually do your work just mechanically, maybe if that's the right word or yeah. what happens, how does it yeah. work? Boy, everything, everything has changed, you know, for, for all yeah. of us. And you're absolutely right. I spent a lot of time going around to different client sites and meeting my clients and being a part of their world, which I viewed as being such a critical component to really understanding their context of mm -hmm. sitting in, in their building and seeing their colleagues and being in the environment. And so it's really turned that notion on its ear um, in that everything I do is through Zoom. and. Um, whether it be running sessions or meeting with clients or uh, doing feedback. And what I have found is that though this was not what I imagined, this was not what I set out to do, that this disruption has really led to the best work I have ever done. And it's oh, not man. because I have become better at the craft. It's because this this confluence of people being ready for this work of mm -hmm. zooming out and asking those big questions of, wait, wait, right. what am I doing? And yeah. where do I want to live? So, so it's the readiness on the people's part, but also the disruption of all of us collectively learning. We can do this. We can do all of this remote and it, it doesn't change. We have this big assumption that it would be different, mm -hmm. that you need to see the context, that you need to sit in the office. And it's not true. Right. It's not true. Right. The, <laughs> we just the, need to let that notion a, go. It's a great thing. There's, the, there's an intimacy with Zoom that actually works really well. That's really, it's different, you know? And when you said, it's like we had this assumption that everything would be different. Well, yeah, it's different. It's different, but it's not, it's not bad. It's just it's not different. Better. Right. It's just different. It's not worse. And, and I encourage, there's, there's a program that I do that was all in person and it was people from all over the world would fly in and we would spend these days together. And we pivoted that to a virtual program. And, and we had to shift the language around virtual is second best. And if we were in person and speaking about being in person longingly and just accept, which I realize is really hard, we're not in person. And frankly, I have no intention of going back to being in person. This mm. works. This yeah. is enough. And we can thrive doing, doing this. We can do exactly what we need to do, whether it be in a program or in the one-on-one -on -one relationship. People say, oh, I, need, I need to see people. And I, 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 I challenge that. I challenge, what are you missing? Or is that a script that's running in your own mind that you think you need that isn't true? And for me, it's not true. I've got, I've got everything I need to work virtually. And this now is the way I work. And yes, I think we, you know, we do need uh, human beings. We need social interaction. We need connection with our families. You know, there is stuff that we need that is real and that is being deprived during a pandemic. Absolutely. But I don't think it's work. I think, I, don't I think mean, it's work you either. know, as you know, you know, I've worked remotely for 25 years now. 
And I find working just dandy with that circumstance. But that doesn't mean I don't want to hang out with my friends and go have drinks or have a you know, go out to a restaurant or see my kids or any of that stuff. That's really important, but it isn't important to getting the work stuff done. Mm -hmm. And especially the more we work at computers, people like I, I think of when I was in an office environment for a while. And what would happen is we would be sitting there, we'd be 10, 15 feet apart and emailing each other and <laughs> yeah. talking on the phone to someone else and barely contacting each other in a real way. Because the work that we do now, you know, at least so many of us, it's knowledge-based work and it's, you know, it's done in your head. It's done through writing. I mean, yeah, there is the face-to-face -face element too, but I don't know. It's just, it seems like it's quite manageable. As you, you know, as you said, it's and in some cases better. I do acknowledge people have different social needs. Yeah. And anybody who knows me knows that I I am an extrovert, so I get my energy from other people, but I don't have high social needs. I'm good. I'm I'm one of the people in the <laughs> pandemic that, you know what? This is more like I have always wanted my life to be. And it is spoken through a lens of complete privilege that, that, that I am able to say that and I'm aware of that. But there are other people who I fully acknowledge are struggling with the lack of social interaction. And these are people who need that kitchen conversation, that organic one-to-one uh, -one that can happen in the hallway at an, at an organization. So I do not deny that. But I think we've all realized that more is possible virtually, even if we still would choose to have those, the, our social needs met in, in an office. And, you know, also it's what you do because you're coaching, right? And so coaching is inherently a mostly one-to-one -one thing. As I'm saying this, I'm going, well, coaching is like therapy. But what you say is coaching isn't therapy. It's product development with you as the product, which is a really interesting concept um, about how coaching works and why you should do it. And I guess we could we could go to that. Let's go to that. Let's go to that. I am a huge proponent. Anytime I'm talking to someone who's looking for a coach, I say, it's important that you know this about me because it'll probably decide it'd be a determining factor if you decide to work with me. It's that I don't believe anyone wants advice ever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I'm not That's a hyperbolic great. person. Yeah. That I, I don't say a lot of always and never in my life. But I think that's true of advice. And I started my career as a management consultant and I saw clients pay big money for advice they didn't take. Right. Oh, yeah. Sure. So often, even when we ask for advice, what we're really looking for is validation, right? Or support mm -hmm. or um, uh, kind of comparative data. But when we tell someone the cold, hard truth, <laughs> when we're giving advice, mm -hmm. uh, what do they do? Right? They, they discount the provider. They say, yep. she doesn't know me. She doesn't know this environment. And we hear what we want to hear. Whereas mm -hmm. when people can generate their own solutions, when you can afford them the environment and the space and the safety and the support to do their own thinking... That's, that's when the ahas come. That's when the breakthroughs come. Mm -hmm. That you could say, hey, here's what you do. You, you, 
but here's what you should do. You should leave that job and um, take some time off and then go get, go get a job over here. They probably wouldn't do that. But if they come up with a plan themselves, there's, there's inspiration there. There's motivation. There's motivation to, to go do it. So um, that's a big, that's a big difference too. As a coach, I don't, I don't view myself as an expert. Do I know about organizational psychology and some of the assessments that, that I use? Absolutely. But I'm, I'm offering them. I'm offering them for con- consideration. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's, there's, there's this theory or there's some, something you're talking about relates to this empirical research that's been done. But I'm not offering it as I know what you should do because how could I? You're the expert in your own life. And I think when people have that kind of true up to that agency that they have in their own lives, that's when good things happen. Totally agree with you. Okay, Kate. <laughs> this is, as I thought when we first talked, this could go on for another hour and a half. No problem. <laughs> so this is, this has just been so much fun. I really appreciate your taking the time to do this. And I would love to do this some more. So we'll talk and see Same. if that could happen. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. Completely fascinating. Yeah. Great, great questions. I'm a lover of questions and I can see that, that you are as well. You've asked some, some really great questions. Thanks. Thank you. So, all right, let's tell people where they can find you online. Sure. My website, my company is Development Corps, C-O-R-P-S, like the Peace Corps, or my dad was part of the Marine Corps. So it's a, a group a group of individuals. So that's www.developmentcorps.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Kate Morse, like the Morse code Gigax. That's where I publish my blog, um, which is also on the website. And I'm on Instagram at Kate Gigax, G-I-G-A-X. Thank you again. It's just been just a blast. Thank you. Well, that's it for now. If you're new to working from home, you might want to check out worklifeathome.com, where you'll find articles, show notes, and best of all, a community where you can ask questions and get some answers from people who've been doing this a while. We'd love to see you there. And I would be thrilled to hear what you think and find out who else you'd like to hear from on the show. You can email me at josh at worklifeathome.com. If you're enjoying Work Life at Home, please do let your friends and coworkers know so they can subscribe. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.